Hey, Kieran, if you want to listen to a good podcast, you can listen to Postmortem with Mick Garris. But if you don't have the time or the educational finesse, then you might just check out Citizen Frame instead. You know what? It's really cool. Um, I got to give... I got to give a massive shout out to Mick Garris for that really cool little uh, you know, name drop he gave for us, um, even though it was insulting, but that's the way we wanted it. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> it was by intention. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, you know, when we do this podcast, you know, we, we do it because we're always fanboys first, but it's always really cool to have somebody so humble and so talented coming on and giving us a little shout out like that. Uh, Mick Garris, I thank you for that. He made this guy, uh, movie buff very happy. And uh, definitely, definitely do appreciate it. Uh, but the reason we're talking Mick Garris today is, as you know, Citizen Frame is uh, good friends with Phantasmagoria. Strongly connected, yeah. Yeah, so we, we talk about that regularly when the new issue comes out every few months. And as you probably all know from the podcast, Trevor is the man in charge, the editor-in-chief. And recently, not too long ago, he got invited to a horror What was it again? Sorry. ChillerCon in Scarborough in May. Yeah, it was ChillerCon. And he gives me, he lets me know like the day day of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going, it's for writers, you know, f- you know, horror writers, fantasy writers, and, you know, shoot the shit, one big melting pot of troubled minds. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then he kind of name drops, yeah, Mick Garris, and then I got, and I go, well, I'm like, whoa, 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 who, Mick Garris, as in post-mortem Mick Garris, <laughs> as in Sleepwalkers, Stephen King's buddy Mick Garris. <laughs> And he's like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, like so casually. <laughs> and I'm like a fanboy going, fuck, we need to talk before you do it, go any further. Yeah. And then he throws it at me that uh, they're going to be interviewing McGarris for Phantasmagoria because Phantasmagoria does interviews with authors. And McGarris, besides being a producer, director, and a screenwriter, is also an author of the macabre himself. He is indeed. Then... We found out that Trevor was been invited to do a panel of podcasting because they know he's affiliated with Citizen Frame and the co-host. Yep. And he's sitting right up there with Mick Garris, who we all know from Postmortem with Mick Garris. I never wanted to beat the shit out of somebody so much like <laughs> Trevor. Lucky, lucky bastard. Yeah, no, yeah. And in my defense, the sort of short notice of telling you was I didn't, it was probably down to my own fault for, you know, not, you know, checking these things until near the time. But um, I think it was like a couple of days before the convention, I, um, I I messaged one of the organizers of it and just asked that, you know, who I would be cheering the panel on podcasts with. And, you know, she mentioned the names and one of them just happened to be Mick Garrison. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, so I was already feeling a bit nervous about it. But, you know, that sort of, but, but, but nervous excitement, I think, would be the correct phrase. Um, but, yeah, what, what was already going to be a pretty cool, you know, panel and very honoured to be asked to chair it. What was already going to be very cool became then super cool. And Mick was great. Yeah, that it, it sounds like that, especially with the interview yeah. um, that I heard. And we're going to be peppering some of that conversation in this podcast. Uh, but real quickly, most of our core audience is horror fans. Uh, that's just the way it is. And we welcome all horror. 
fans. Yeah, absolutely. And non-horror fans too, I must say. You know, everyone's welcome to jump on board. The Citizen Frame, you know, groovy train. Oh, dear God, you just ruined it right there. <laughs> groovy. Uh, but refresh, of course, with Mick Garris. Mick Garris has been in the business for, uh, forever. And he started out doing small documentaries on film sets like Goonies, The Thing, and The Howling. So he knows Carpenter and Dante and Richard Donner. So a uh, great way to start out. And then, of course, you you, 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 meet, you meet Spielberg. He ended up doing uh, Amazing Stories. He ended up writing The Fly 2. He ended up writing for Hocus Pocus. Uh, Batteries Not Included. Not to mention, I think he's done eight Stephen King films, including The Shining miniseries, The Stand miniseries, my personal favorite, Sleepwalkers. Uh, he created Masters of Horror, one of the best TV shows ever. And another, another he also did the that underrated uh, series called Fear Itself. Yes. Which was really cool. Uh, just, just a talented, just a renaissance man of the business. Yeah, and I believe and, um, Mick also started off back in the sixties. You know, interviewing the likes of you know Rod Serling of you know the Twilight Zone, and and he also interviewed a lot of um, really big musicians. You know, back in the sixties. You know, like Janis Joplin. He was just, I believe, he was still at school at the time. You know, so yeah, he's been there and he's done it and he's done it all. <laughs> Yeah, he's definitely he's he's definitely earned the reputation he has. Yeah, and now he's got over 120 interviews with uh, Postmortem with Mick Garris. The great thing about Postmortem, it's how we talk about films and what we feel about them, what they could have done better, what they've done right. He his focus is more on the creative aspect of it. Uh, so he'll talk to a lot of directors, like we mentioned, Joe Dante, John uh, John Landis, and, and so forth, uh, Guillermo del Toro. Just just this. Just this 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 mind of knowledge, of just of a genre that I I admire so much, and he knows so much about it. So it's it is literally an honor and a privilege to have him, um, you know, be a piece of this uh, for our small podcast. And uh, that's hopefully Mick Garris says we allowed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean Mick Mick has you know Mick is known as the nice guy of horror. And he certainly deserves that sort of nickname because he's just a yeah. very down-to-earth, very sort of humble, genuinely very nice guy. And it was just a real pleasure and honour to meet him and hang out with him for a bit over that weekend in May in Scarborough. When I uh, found out you were doing this, I told you, you got to ask him. My favourite, everyone knows, is slasher films. Yeah. So was, and he, never really, he, ne- he never really talks about them. So I, I wanted his opinion on it, and this is kind of what he said, sadly. <laughs> but uh, give, us, give us a quick listen. Well, there are good ones, certainly. Uh, if you call Texas Chainsaw Massacre a slasher movie, the greatest of all time. I agree. It's smart. It's scary. It is, you, you watch that movie, you don't recognize the actors. You don't know anything about the filmmakers when it came out in 1974. And it's... It's just a matter of, I don't know what these people are capable of showing me. It feels documentary style, almost. It's, and and yeah, it's raw. very artistically shot. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't see it in the theater where it was, you know, pristine blow up from a 16 millimeter negative and all that. Mm. But when it comes to the generic slashers of the 80s, to me, it's not much storytelling. It's just like, 
a producer saying, hey, I got $300,000 and I can kill kids and put them in a summer camp and make a fortune, you know. They're a little bit bankrupt when it comes to storytelling. And uh, all of the different holiday horrors and all that stuff, it's just a cry for money. But there are some great ones. And he does make a fair point about about slasher films but at the same time I still personally think I think because he's 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 like he mentions he's he's he he's he's, he's a writer a storyteller yeah. he's a storyteller and where slasher films really got their bad name from is from the 80s when they, all it was was let's get a body count basically tets and killing yeah. yeah yeah and he, he understand so he, that's why he doesn't appreciate him as much as the other subgenres out there with horror and I get that but he did say this about the greatest film ever made. Well, that's a great movie. It yeah. is a classic. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and you care about Laurie Strode. You care about the people. It's genuinely suspenseful and terrifying. It's John Carpenter mm-hmm. being influenced by Alfred Hitchcock yeah. and casting you know, Janet Lee's daughter. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> you go from Psycho to Halloween. It's yeah. a pretty great progression. Yeah. But... It is certainly the granddaddy slasher movie, yeah. but there's so much more to it, and that makes it exceptional. Absolutely. So there you go. That's a happy note. Yep. <laughs> Not a big fan of slasher, but he loves my Halloween, and I think that's the important thing we take out of this. Yeah. Uh, but we're here to talk about a movie that is near and dear to his heart. It's called Riding the Bullet. It is Stephen King, and, and once again, he has taking the reins as director and also a screenwriter for this one, which he does with many of his films. And we're just going to dive into it. And this one, we're going to do something a little different. We're just going to discuss it uh, just in bits and pieces, kind of like, well, kind of what we usually do. But we're going to try to be professional, at least I am. <laughs> well, and prof- what, what is our motto? Professionalism is... It's not an option. It is in this one. <laughs> yeah, but one I night only. Yeah, I said one night only. And I've already, I've already fucked this up. So, <laughs> but what I want to do is because yes, because it's Mick Garris, and I, I watched it the first time. All right, and usually when it comes to horror films, I'll watch it once and go, oh, it's, it's okay. But this one, I want to give another shot because I wasn't a real fan of it the first time I saw it. Then I well, I appreciated certain aspects of it. Then I want to say, so I watch it again, and then I picked up more things, and I watch it one more time, and now I have I'm I'm a lot more fonder of it than I was originally. And I asked you, Trevor, to read the novella. Yes. Which I don't read. <laughs> that sounds really sad, but I I, I I usually wait for the movie. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> You know, a lot of people do, you know, so, yeah. So, I've got some questions, all right? Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to give you what I got out of it, my couple of viewings, and then you can kind of piggyback on that and say if I'm wrong or what King was going for or what, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay? Okay, good. It's got a very minimal cast, and I was very pleased with that because I think a film that's, quite frankly, is quite deep. Needs less characters because if you start bombarding us with all these crazy characters, different characters, you could get lost in the mix, mm-hmm. and that could hurt the hurt what the film was trying to do. Um, we've got 
Jonathan Jackson, David Arquette, Cliff Robinson, Barbara Hershey, and Erica Christensen. Nice little cast there, especially Barbara Hershey, Cliff Robinson, and David Arquette. Yeah. They're kind of the veterans of, of the film. And then we got newbies, Jonathan Jackson and Erica Christensen. Now, Jonathan plays Alan. He's a troubled art student. Is that correct? He's an art student. Yeah. Yes, okay, cool. Who has attempted to commit suicide. And he's caught off guard by a surprise party as he's doing it, which was an awkward scene. I'll tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. And his mother has taken a turn for the worse. She's had a stroke. And he decides he is going to hitchhike 120 miles to get, get go to her bedside. Now, both him and the mother have been kind of distant with each other a little bit. They... Um, because the, they have had a passing, the, the husband and the father died when he was at a, a younger age. Yes. And both uh, the mother, Jean, and Alan haven't really dealt with it. I think this is where this is going, so bear with me, Trevor. Could, yeah. So he decides to take a walkabout, a, a walk, a, a hitchhiking trip to go see his mother. And each time he gets picked up, he gets picked up by a zany character of some sort. Or something happens, like the hippie, but he's not really a hippie. He's actually a war vet dressed up like a hippie. Mm-hmm. Um, not being who he is, he's, he's a pothead. He crashes the car. He he gets out of the car. He goes to the next the next one. Then we meet the farmer, Cliff Robertson, who clearly who's just lost his wife. You could tell. Yes, he's very lonely. I took it the wrong way the first time I saw it. I thought he was kind of creeping on the boy, creeping on Alan for a bit. No, no. But at the end of the day, it's just a lonely human being. There's also um, the suggestion, um, certainly, and I think in the original story, anyway. Uh, but there's also the suggestion that, that maybe the farmer himself is also dead. Um, now, I'm not saying that is definitely the case, but there's a, there's a wee there's a, a bit of a suggestion there. You know, well, it's fun. It's funny you say that because. During his walk, whether he's alone or with somebody, he has Alan has these visions. Yes. And you don't know what's real and what's not. Yes. Now he's got a a twin that we see in the car, but it's not a twin. It's more of his his alter ego or his or his conscience. Yeah. Is that just the way of a sprout? Why does he have that? You know, are they just doing it just as like we all do? We all have our inner voice. Yeah. We all have that. Is that what he's just trying to, McGarris is trying to show? Or was that Stephen King? In the original novella by King, there is quite a bit of internal monologue from the main character of Alan. So I think this is basically um, essentially a plot device to convey the sort of inner thoughts of Alan on the screen. You know, obviously it's a very, you know, with the written word, it's a very different medium. And obviously, you know, it's much easier to, to write, you know, the sort of internal okay. sort of monologues or thoughts of a character. But, you know, visually on the screen, it's a different thing. So uh, essentially, I think um, Mick is doing it through that way of the sort of, the sort of, you know, the other version of Alan who is sort of chirping in his ear, you know, his thoughts, essentially. So I'd rather have that. I'd rather see a physical presence mm-hmm. of his alter ego or his conscience rather than a stupid voiceover. Yeah, yeah. Because um, that, I can't stand voiceovers. Mm-hmm. It just takes me out. Mm-hmm. So during the during these uh, little road trips, he, there's a nice shot, and it kind of plays in what we're about to, before we meet George Staub, the David Arquette character, where he has this, he keeps having this vision of a graveyard. 
And then we see the graveyard, his father's funeral, he's being buried. Then behind is the father, the mother's getting buried. And then behind yes. the mother, he's getting... Kind of like the chain of events, what might be happening. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a foreshadowing. Yeah. And these are visions that he's having as he's walking in between rides. Yes. The crow. What was with the crow? Tell him. The crow starts looking at him and goes, What the fuck are you looking at? <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think essentially what was going on there was Alan was pretty messed up in the head between everything going on with his mother. Um, you know, also he had attempted suicide. His girlfriend split up with him. That sort of thing. But also, um, it's set in the 60s, you know, during that whole sort of counterculture drug era. You know, brilliant sound, 60s soundtrack, by the way, just as an aside in the film. And um, so I think that's basically Mick sort of suggesting to the audience that this guy's a bit messed up in the head. So he is. And... Um, you know, it's basically as we say in Belfast, his heads up as ours. You know, um, so yeah, but obviously there's a, there's you know he's been dabbling with drugs and stuff as well. So he's a bit all over the show mentally. This this kid. Okay, because my concern with the film is what I have concern with a lot of films you like. I don't like things being peppered in just for the sake of putting them in. Oh no, it's not just for the sake. Um, and the and the other films that I like that you're referencing, um, they're well, you know, I would argue they're not put in for the sake. Of yeah, the they are. Yeah, <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah, they are. But uh, no, no. In this in this case, there, there's a point to it, you know. But there's there's it, there's a lot of quirkiness within you know this film riding the bullet. Um, but it's sort of it's you know at first you know on first view and I was a bit overall I would maybe have preferred the film to be handled in a much, in a much more serious tone, but on reflection. Um, the quirkiness and the little bits of humor and stuff that we get, you know, the sort of, it's basically gallows humor and stuff. It's it's a relief for the audience overall, you know, from um what is um ultimately a very deep and very serious film and story overall. So yeah, it is. You're right on that because I do believe in peppering a little humor for a dark for a dark idea. Yeah, it's a relief. But yeah. I do think some of it goes a little too quirky. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, and that and that includes the crow. And again, there could be something in there I don't know. And uh, so, Mick, you want to come on the podcast? You know, explain it to us. <laughs> you, know, you know, you the invite's there. <laughs> but what we meet George Staub, who's the main, yes, the main. I, I don't want to say villain. We'll get to who he is, really. Yeah. And he drives up in Christine, the fifth uh, in that beautiful Plymouth Fury. Yes. I know that was Mick and Stevens. Uh, like we're best friends, Mick and Steven. Yeah. Uh, their <laughs> choice Steve, to go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they go with the Christine. It was a Mustang, I think. Is that correct? I believe, yeah, it's, uh, or maybe a Buick. I, I, I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm not big up on cars in general, um, well, especially not American That's cars, funny. classic American cars. Uh, but okay. I know it wasn't a, it wasn't Christine in the original novel. Yeah. So George picks him up, and George seems like a pretty nice guy. Mm-hmm. And as the as the miles kick in as he's driving him to the hospital, he starts to change a bit. His persona it gets a little more aggressive. Also, his skin starts changing. He's he's starting to, be, quite frankly, become demon like. Yes. And we find out that he is the Grim Reaper, his right hand man. And also, he um, well, the realization for Alan that it's basically the guy whose basically grave he was at whenever he was in the graveyard in the cemetery. Yeah, see, I, I, I don't get... Is that just a coincidence, or was he put there on purpose to be introduced to him? Well, do you remember early on in the film, um, at, at the beginning of the hitchhike, there is another car accident. You get a glimpse of David Arquette's George 
there. Um, it's sort of like a brief glimpse. So my take on it was um, that basically, um, basically fate and you know the grim reaper death you know um death's messenger play um you know who george is it basically everything was conspiring um to make alan meet um george essentially huh you know when you say george yes i just thought of this you're probably like oh my god kieran i can see why you're part of this podcast you're brilliant (laughs) so the film plays like it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Now you're gonna laugh at this. Well, there is elements of that there, because George to me is playing. I forgot his name. Sorry. We uh, the angel. Yeah. All right. Trying to get his wings, and it's a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. But instead of his wings, he's getting a, a sickle, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever you get for being promoted, being the Grim Reaper's assistant. <laughs> but and what Arquette is doing is, is orchestrating his path, but not necessarily for the bad. Like, for some reason, George gives him an alter... He goes, you kill yourself? Not kill yourself. You die or your mom dies. You have to make a choice. You need, yeah. you need to make a choice. And we keep having these flashes of the bullet, you know, right in the bullet, that, that roller coaster. Yeah. And how he was scared to do that. And we saw the mom kind of smack him in the head. Yes. During the opening credits, we saw that, and also during some flashbacks... But it showed that he was scared. He he, he didn't want to confront fear. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want that. And they waited for hours to get onto this ride. And it, I, as we discuss it, I, I seem to be more of where where George is guiding him in the right direction. I totally agree. And so when he finally breaks down because he. He's trying to run away from George. He's seeing. He's, he's in the circuit. Uh, what do they call it? The fair again. He's yes. Ru- finding himself with the Hall of Mirror. He's getting confused. He's all over the place. He finally has enough, and he says, "Take my mom," mm-hmm. because he's scared. He's had enough. Yeah. Yeah. So when he when he finally goes see his mom, all right. Uh, again, there was a couple different. We I was confused who we're seeing because he has different takes yes. of his visit to his mom. Mm-hmm. You know, we have two different doctors, two different personalities. And when he finally goes to see his mom, the first thing his mom says was to apologize. Even though she's been through all this mm-hmm. and she's, she's, you know, she's under medical care for the stroke, she apologizes to him for hitting him in the top of the back of the head mm-hmm. for not wanting to take that roller coaster ride. Yes. And it dawned on me then. Then I'm thinking... His guilt must be horrible at this point. Oh, yeah. Because he chose his mother's passing over his, where there he chose not to go on the roller coaster. It seems like he takes the, he takes the safe way out. Yes. Um, is that, does that sound about right? No, no, no. Or am I, I, I get, totally agree am I with muddling you. this? And the more I think about it, um, you know, at first, before we recorded this podcast, I was thinking that maybe George isn't um, really, uh, you know, he's not really a villain. He's more of a sort of anti-hero, you know. It's, it's like tough love George is practicing on Alan. But the more I think about it, as, certainly as you were discussing it there, George is actually the hero of the film. And I'll tell you why. Because he is... This is, this is a common of age story and film. Um, it's basically... Um, Alan is selfish. He's childish. He's immature. He's basically still a kid. You know, um, at, at the beginning. 
But after what is a literal journey, I mean, the film is basically a road movie. I think you mentioned that before, Kieran. And um, but by the end of the journey, despite making the, I mean, this film is about a lot of things, but you know, ultimately the story is about um, um, at the end of the film, despite making the horrific, selfish decision when he was still a child, uh, you know, a, a child mentally, um, of choosing his mother to die instead of himself. Um, he, you know, he, he, he eventually is on the road to becoming an adult and George, and presumably death, you know, the Grim Reaper knows this and I believe that's why they give him a little bit of leeway at the end where they give the, you know, him, uh, you know, they give Alan and his mother a couple more years together to repair and mend their relationship together. So I totally agree with you. George is so, the hero with this film. Yeah, George is the guiding light. Yes. But, like, when George... George is the one who told him... Now, we know the father was... The mom says the, the father was killed in a car accident. Obviously, he took his... We find out he took his own life. George tells this yes. to Alan. Now, we know that you protect your kid. You're not going to tell your father blew your head off, blew his head off with a shotgun in the room next door. Yeah. You're not going to tell a child that. We get that. But George just tells him mm-hmm. in a very creepy way, but this is the way it is. We don't know who George really is at this point. At this point, we think he's the villain. And so when George tells him, your father, blah, 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 I think George, you said it, tough love. Yes. And I think he did that because you selfish little prick, you're going to take your own life, and your father took his life, which he didn't know at this point, but mm-hmm. now he does. And pretty much fuck your mother over. Yeah. Because your mother now would have to deal with your suicide as well as your father's. Mm-hmm. And even there's I think a... That's what, I think that's why he George had to tell him what happened. Really but happened not only that, father. you must remember as well, George is not human at this point. Um, he is some otherworldly sort of entity, messenger of um, the Grim Reaper. So George is also a truth speaker. George doesn't tell lies um, in this film. Yeah, if you want story. somebody, yeah. he's not going to be there to cuddle you. No, he's, he's, a, um, he's a speaker of truth, or however brutal and uncomfortable that truth is. You know what? You know what? Mm-hmm. He's Jack from American Will from London. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Bingo. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah, and you know, even the fact that um, as the journey progresses. Um, George becomes more and more sort of zombie-like, you know, on dead. <gasps> Just like Jack! Yes. And, uh, you know, um, makes a, um, a good friend of John Landis's, um, from what I hear. Um, so, yeah, that, that sort of, you know, becoming more on dead is very possibly a reference to Jack in the uh, in, in American world in London. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 bingo. What's with the goddamn crazy hillbillies? Um, uh, they were basically, um, I think they were just basically, um, to get, jo- um, sorry, Alan from a certain point to a certain point. Um, you know, it, it was just one of many, you know, these different hitchhikers that picked up Alan, but they, they were the ones that got him to the graveyard to take refuge in the graveyard where he first discovered, um, George's grave, the original, you know, when, when he was human, you know, before he died. Well, sorry, okay. when he died. <laughs> okay. So this might explain it then. When we see Cliff Robertson, the one who, you know, we thought he was kind of a creeper. Yes. But he's not. He's just a lonely human being. Yeah. When he leaves the car, the truck, mm-hmm. he turns back and he sees Cliff Robertson with his wife. Yes. Or a spirit or some something. Yeah. And then my my question to you is, 
are these rides deliberate? Well, this to is get the thing. him to point A to point B. This is the thing. It certainly seems to be that the supernatural forces of that night. Don't forget, there's a thing about the harvest moon and stuff, you know. And it's a special night, you know, of the of the calendar and stuff. Um, so you know, on on this special night, you know, spooky things are going to happen. So it certainly appears that um, the supernatural forces were conspiring to bring Alan to this point, and but also to meet George, and go on this journey and not just a physical journey in the car but also it's a coming of age story yeah i can see that now especially that explains the ending Mm -hmm. so when the mother asked him to forgive him yeah um like i said guys it's a really nice scene barbara hershey's a wonderful actress i've always liked her um i even like beaches you know i'm at that i'm at that well (laughs) well the great made me look like an ass (laughs) uh but so, when she apologizes and they're bonding, they get the two extra year, the two extra years. Yes, in, like in the original novella, I think they get seven years. Okay, together. Well, this one they show it real quickly, the two years. Yeah, but it's done well, even though it's only a minute or two. Mm-hmm. They, he, had, Mick Garris knows how to get to point A to point B in a time wise, yes. quickly, but make his point. Mm-hmm. And so she, she dies quietly in her chair. Yes, and then we see him. Modern day, a different actor playing him at this point, and at the end, he decides to take that trip on the bullet, on the roller coaster, um, and he's got a big grin on his face. So, that's him becoming a man, going full circle. That's his arc. Yes, but hundred percent. That's a long time to get on that roller coaster. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> you know, with a lot of men, myself included, you know, we're gonna be, you know, um, it took me. I don't. I'm still far from perfect, but you know, it took me. I'm forty six now took me a lot of years to sort of be fully responsible and mature and stuff but yeah essentially for me um the roller coaster of the bullet represents life itself you know and he was always a kid and always afraid and always running away the fact that he ran away from death and and you know put his own mother um at the hands of death you know it was it was selfish and immature but by the end of the film whenever he's you know um he's in his like 40 late 40s or 50s or whatever um he he's basically made his peace with um himself his the, the memory of his mother and he's basically become a man and that is sort of symbolic of him you know taking the roller coaster that you know he's not a kid anymore and he's basically he's now a fully responsible adult you know type thing and yeah it's you know I know, I know that um, reading certain reviews of this film, you know, on the likes of IMDb and stuff, you know, I think a lot of people just didn't get the real depth that this film has. And, um, you know, they didn't really sort of fully appreciate the, the depth of it. It's a film that also um, um, improves on repeat viewings because you get that sense of it, the sense of the theme more. You know, it's funny you say that. I'm going to piggyback on that mm-hmm. comment. You know why is it when King, when King does, well, when 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 King does a film like this or writes something like this, and people don't seem to kind of get it, they gotta rewatch it. Like myself, I'll be just as guilty as that. But I knew it's a journey. Mm-hmm. I knew there's an arc here for Alan. Yes. Every Stephen King film. Especially when a young act, young uh, there's a young person in it, whether it's a teenager or a kid, 
They're all about journeys and arcs. Yeah. Jesus Christ, look at Carrie. Look at um, mm-hmm. um, look at uh, geez, Stand by Me. Look at uh, mm-hmm. it for Christ's sake. Look at every Cujo. Look at all of his films. There's there's a child always in peril. Yeah. Um, and I say child loosely. I'm talking. You know, could be what Alan is. Alan's probably 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. And he there's a journey he's got to complete. There's some kind of well, in this, you know, it's know. A, it's a double journey here. You know, there's the physical journey in the car with George and the other guys who pick him up, but also, uh, more importantly, there is the emotional journey. You know, and you know, it's a you know, it's sort of it, it harks back to classic storytelling. You know, where the sort of hero, um, although I said George is the hero in this one, he's the real hero to me. But um, you know, it's it's a classic. You know, sort of you know, um, a flawed hero makes a journey and by the end of the journey he has become a better person and grown and that's proper professional storytelling from both Kane and Garrus. Yeah, and that's the funny thing is, if you put King and Garrus under in the under the same roof, mm-hmm. people who are watch this should give it another watch. Yes. They I should agree. be watching this going, What? They should go and oh wait a minute, this is King and Garrus. Yeah. There's something else here. Yeah. So you gotta give you gotta you, you gotta give it another viewing. Now I'm not a diehard fan of it. I'm not gonna sit there and mm-hmm. and and say, oh my god, this is the greatest. It's not. Um, but it's a lot better. And I've never heard of it. Beyond, I'm gonna say it now. And and so when I checked it out, I was pleasantly surprised how much I did enjoy it the second time around, and then the third time I did it for the podcast, and and then obviously as you and I discussing it. It opens a lot, you know, a lot more windows are open yes. now, yes. and I can see clearly outside what, 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 you know, what was coming. I do feel he does pepper in some camp that just doesn't, it just doesn't mix with me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a rhyme and reason to it. Yeah, Mick Garris put it in there, but I don't understand it. I, I what I did, I did enjoy the scene where we see George's actual death, but it's presented like in a film as a film within a film, you know, in the cinema and stuff, and, you know, um, it's all very quirky, and there's a, lot, there's a lot of quirkiness in this film, you know? There is, there is. Yeah. Uh, it's very, it's very. I would say it's very unique in the whole style of its filming, but also, I would say, at its core, uh, and Mick Garris, you know, does this, I would assume, because he knows Stephen Keane, and Stephen Keane's works so well, I would um, assume, uh, well, I would say that Mick, uh, this film especially, is very Stephen um, Keane-esque in sort of tone and thematic material. It's it, it, it's a, a very much a Stephen Keane adaptation and it feels like a Stephen Keane story. Obviously, it's very personal to Mick as well, but there is it, it, it feels Stephen Keane-esque to me. And not all you know, sort of directors of adaptations of Keane's work, including Stanley Kubrick with his version of The Shining, capture that, but McGarris does. And the, and the funny thing is, it has a lot of similarities to, and mm-hmm. God forgive me for saying this, it's got a Lynch vibe to it. Well, to a certain and extent. When I, yeah, what I mean by that, Lynch loves quirky characters, yeah. and, and, you know, and this is what this is full of. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of quirky characters and that's where you kind of get lost. Mm-hmm. Do I take this seriously or not? Yes. And that's why having discussions with you about it or watching it for the second time, you get more out of it. Yeah. Lynch, uh, Tarantino, all these guys have repeat viewings. And the reason they do that is because they're not going to spoon feed you the answers. 100%. And that's the you way it should be. Gotta, you got to rewatch it. Well, agree to disagree in some of that comment. <laughs> no. <laughs> unless, it's, unless it's the lighthouse. <laughs> uh, but 
and that's what works for this one. And a lot of kings are like that. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, even believe it or not, Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. is my just a masterpiece. The Mist. Yeah. Um, all these uh, Green Mile. They all require extra viewings, especially The Shining. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. it, there's more to it. It's not just horror. Well, yeah. obviously the couple I mentioned are really horror, but no, no, that's it. There's depth there. So the, yeah, there's uh, you know there, there's there's more meat on the bone, guys. Yeah, now, I must admit yeah. that um, on first view, and I did find some of the quirkiness. Uh, it took me um, a while to sort of get used to, but on reflection, I came away from it um, thinking, yeah, I see why Mick did that, and it works on reflection, not just to give the audience a bit of comic relief, but it sort of works in a stylistic way as well, you know, and it, you know it, it's. <sighs> You know, there's, there's, you know, it's a form of storytelling that very much works. You know, on the screen and very unique. You know, uh, very idiosyncratic type. Um, you know, style of film making. Um, but yeah, but you know, I think the real core and the real heart of this film is essentially, you know, essentially the theme of what it is about, and based on you know what Mick told us ourselves in the interview, um, for Phantasmagoria. But also um, reading Stephen King's author notes um, about writing the bullet. Um, it, this this film is ultimately about death and basically the acceptance of death and you know losing loved ones and or trying to understand you know death and you know the reason for all of this. And you know I think you know uh, around the um, time that you know Stephen King wrote the original novella. Um, you know, he was maybe at a certain age where his, you know, certain family members were getting older, and and um, perhaps you know, it's not for me to say, perhaps you know, um, Mick was you know going through certain you know, um, let's just say emotional sort of times himself when the, you know during the making of this film. In fact, you know, he he's pretty much confirmed that it's a very personal film to him for those reasons. Um, so that that certainly comes across in both the the original King story. And this film, and for me now, at um, a certain age now, where my own parents are sort of uh, at a certain age, you know, they're in their mid seventies and they're getting a bit. Dude, st- dude. Okay, now we're just getting really depressed. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so no. Basically, Whoa. what I'm saying is, um, basically that basically I totally get um, the sort of you know the. the the real sort of heart and soul of this film and what it's about. It's about death and the exploration of death, you know? Yeah, I mean, you could take quite a bit from it. and uh, But yeah, a film that, that deals primarily with the uh, death of a loved one at yeah. a young age and suicide can be obviously pretty dark tone. So yes. putting a little humor in it, I understand that. Mm-hmm. I just feel that some of it was a little too. Once you pepper in a couple of humor spots, you're taking your you're taking us out of that journey mm-hmm. and going on a different path. So that can kind of hurt the film a bit. Mm-hmm. And I'll stick by that. But but the, but the road eventually they all meet whatever road you're going on, whatever the crow throws you off uh, a different fork in the road, and so forth. It all makes sense at the very end. Yeah, oh, uh, very like Tarantino where. You know, what's going on? All these conversations <coughs> happening, all these characters, but at the end, it all ties together. Under, yeah, totally, uh, totally. So it. Uh, I think I it's think it's an, also um, overall very underrated. Um, certainly. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mentioned you. I know, I know Mick Harris' stuff, and yeah, um, I never really knew about it. I think what happened was maybe it got filmed, and maybe it was just 
I don't know where it went. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we went to HBO or if we went direct to video. Uh, obviously, Mick Garris would know that. But I think in the I UK it might have went straight to like DVD or whatever. It's probably what happened in the in the uh, mm-hmm. in the US. But uh, listen, uh, this was a, this was a definitely a unique experience. I was trying to be professional. <laughs> yeah, not like I mean, what happened, Kieran? You know, two, two weeks ago, know. we were um, two weeks ago we were talking about Jason takes Manhattan, and now we're discussing the meaning of life. You know, <laughs> oh, thank God we're doing Rob Zombie's The Monsters next. <laughs> we're so, really um, dumb it down. Thank for you that to one. Mick for actually uh, making this a little bit more highbrow. Let's <laughs> uh, see, see. We're professional when we want to be, sort of. <laughs> yeah, we only uh, act the fool. <laughs> there is, um, I want to uh, give a shout out to yourself, Trevor, of course, and to Con Connolly and Ellie Weir. Yep. For who handled the interview process and handled the interviews itself. Yes. Uh, wonderful job. We do appreciate it. Ellie and Con are writers. In, in for Phantasmagoria, yeah. and uh, she's check out the work there. Also, if you want to hear the entire, you want to read the entire interview, please do. It's a lot more in depth than what, what we just give you some basic sound bites. Uh, check it out in the new issue of Phantasmagoria, out now, available on Amazon worldwide, and of course locally, Forbidden Planet. Now, I'm going to end with a comment that Mick made. During the interview, and it was the best fucking statement I've heard by a filmmaker ever. And it is about how horror is frowned upon. And how it's, you know, nobody seems to endorse horror. It's never taken seriously. It's not respected. And the line he said was, it's somewhere like where he says, Horror is not respected uh, creatively, but it is financially. So they know that the studios will put up, will throw out horror because it doesn't cost much to make it, but it'll make them millions. Yeah. They basically hate horror, but they're happy to make them or, or fund them at the very least, you know, these studios, because it'll make them money. But what's great about the comment, it also mentioned, it also, it also, we talked about Ty West here. Yes. With X and how he doesn't go big budget. Mm-hmm. He'll, you're more creative when you have, when you have less of a budget to work with. Mm-hmm. It shows in Halloween. Uh, it shows in Texas Chainsaw. It shows in a lot of those films. Agree, a hundred percent. And and people like yourself and I and Phantasm Goria readers and Citizen Frame listeners, yeah, they'll understand what Mick Garris meant by that comment. Totally. And it's so true, Mick. I hope you listen to this podcast. I want to thank you for being so humble and allowing us to do this. At least I hope so, because we're going to be airing this without your permission, I think. No, it's with permission. <laughs> I, I, I've, yeah, I'm just I've spoken to Mac. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. All right. But you heard that. Trevor said he did it. So <laughs> if there's any legal action, Trevor. On my head, be it. <laughs> uh, I'm just teasing. Yeah. Uh, guys, please follow us on Citizen Frame underscore podcast. And of course, Facebook. Next up is Halloween month. And uh, got some good ones coming up, including the long, 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 long long-waited end of the quadrilogy heaven we call Halloween. Yep. Mm -hmm. Guys, take care of yourselves. Have a safe one. We'll chat soon. In the horror field, whether you're a painter or a musician or a writer or a director or whatever, a novelist, um, the glamour of of horror imagery and death and all is really cool (laughs) until you're confronted by mortality and reality 
you know, and riding the boat is about a 21-year-old, and no 21-year-old should be confronted with the possibility of a parent dying. Yeah. Uh, and, and so mm -hmm. that as a response, it, it was something personal to me to go, yeah, I think this stuff is really cool stuff, but man, I've been hit by mortality. I've, I've lost two brothers and a sister. I've lost both parents. I've lost friends. And it becomes something deeper and more meaningful mm. when you realize how precious life is.